Hello, and welcome to the Alka Huh podcast, the podcast that says the drunker I am, the smarter I am. I'm EJ. I'm Beth. And this week, uh, we're going to stick with our MO and go ahead and give you a couple totally, probably unrelated topics that neither of us know, uh, at least what the other's researching. You going to fire us off tonight? I am. I'm sure people have seen on Facebook or Pinterest the memes of, is cursive handwriting going to be a secret code when we're in the nursing home? Well, to be totally honest with you, my cursive already looks like it's a secret code. (laughs) I know. To be fair, your regular handwriting sometimes can be a secret code. Secret codes are awesome. Although... has been told to me before that the messier the handwriting it just means you are meant to be a doctor because nobody can read doctor's handwriting anyway Mm, i don't think i'd want to be a doctor (laughs) to start researching this tonight i found out that common core or no child left behind standards adopted by most states in recent years made it so it's no longer required to teach cursive handwriting in public schools I went to a public school and a private school, and I remember being taught cursive handwriting when I was younger. I remember cursive, and the letter Z, that's the one that seems to get everybody, isn't it? (laughs) You know, I started taking my notes for this when I started researching my topic tonight, and I don't write in cursive handwriting most of the time. If anything, it is when I'm signing my signature or I'm signing for the kids because they're not legal to sign something is when I write cursive. I I find myself doing a little bit of both, actually. My current job doesn't require me to write very often, and if it is, it's usually numbers, and there are no cursive numbers as far as I know. But I do write, and some of my letters are uh, traditional, like what is that the roman alphabet and then some of the other ones i'll throw in like a little swoopy or this h needs the bubble butt my g's and my y's tend to run together with other letters while i'm writing but other than that i don't have a whole lot of cursive handwriting in my repertoire I found an article that, according to the Washington Post, in a story posted July of this year, that Louisiana recently passed a law requiring all traditional public schools to begin teaching cursive by third grade and continue through 12th grade. Arkansas's legislature has also passed a law about cursive writing, along with about 10 other states, including Virginia, California, Florida, and Texas, about the importance of including it in their curriculum. Yeah, you know, I think that, that it is important because if you can't write it, what are the odds that you're going to be able to read it? A lot of important historical documents are written. I found some information about that, really? about how most of like the United States Constitution and even diplomas and things are written in a type of script right. or calligraphy that is related to cursive handwriting right. and how that it's going to become an issue later on in life if nobody learns cursive handwriting how are you going to be able to read these it's going to have to be translated by somebody that actually has been studying the language and or the writing well and a lot of those documents were written before there were 
typewriters even, or printing presses of any kind. So it makes sense that they would be in longhand cursive script because it is faster to write with cursive. It is. I've found that out. But I did find myself, since I'm out of practice, when I was writing some of my notes for this, trying to purposely write in cursive handwriting, that it was taking me longer to remember how to make certain really? letters. Really? Yeah. My Z comment earlier was actually because of that Adam Sandler movie, Billy Madison, you know, where she <laughs> yes. made him write in cursive and made him write Zs. Yeah, that's why I said that. Um. I did see that some say learning cursive improves fine motor dexterity and gives children a better idea of how words work in combination. Other people feel, though, now with laptops, cell phones, and tablets, that we really don't need to teach cursive to children anymore. That it's becoming a dying art that is no longer a practical thing to be teaching children, you know? Well, there's a lot of things that people feel that way about. Look at shop classes in school and look at, you know, home economics class. I mean, those things have kind of gone by the wayside, too. And I don't understand. I mean, everybody should know how to cook for themselves. Everybody should know how to read a letter or write a letter. How do you test on that? How do you test on that? Common Core is all about what they can test on. True. And testing equals funding. Correct. And funding is what makes the education system go around. According to Tamara Thornton, a University of Buffalo, Buffalo historian, Buffalo. learning cursive has never been just about learning how to express yourself in writing. You can't roller skate in a buffalo <laughs> In the early 20th century, it's a, they said it's about following models and suppressing your individuality. Handwriting drills at the time were compared to military drills with the idea of an emphasis on repetition and perfection would keep students in line and lead to standardization. Well, that's kind of like the typing drills, though, that when when I was in school, you I know, took typing in school, you had your words per minute. And I think it's the same thing, how accurate you were. Yeah. Um. Some parents <laughs> do not agree with cursive writing not being taught in the schools and have taken it upon themselves to teach their children cursive handwriting outside of the school system. And I did read a couple articles about how the school system is angry when these children who have been learning it outside of school come in and try to write cursive in school and the child gets in trouble and is not allowed to use this form of writing at school anymore. Um. Yeah. It's becoming more common in younger gener generations. I'm just doing awesome tonight. Um, <laughs> that you do not sign their names. That they write everything in black lettering. So legal documents, when you're supposed to give your signature, a lot of the younger generation is just giving their black lettering. Well, that would be so much name. easier to forge. And that was another thing I found about how much easier it is to forge things and... How not having a signature is becoming a problem already. Good luck forging mine. Um, <laughs> historical documents are written in cursive, and we may come to a point in history where people are unable to read them for themselves because they never learned the cursive handwriting. Well, I never learned hieroglyphics. I never did either. Um, some studies say learning and using cursive can make you smarter. 
Cursive has been shown to improve left and right brain synergy and even promote the brain's language and memory functions. Do you think that's because they say that the hemispheres are divided into your uh, your logical center and your uh, your art or creativity center, you know? So using uh, calligraphy or cursive writing, you are getting a little artsy while you're being logical. Do you think that's why? That bridges that gap? It could. I read also about how taking notes in cursive when you're in lecture classes and such is faster because you don't have to lift the pen. Right. Or how with black lettering, you're focusing on each letter instead of the actual whole word that you're trying to get out. And it slows you down because you have to focus on each letter instead of... But again, like I said, I tried taking some some of my notes tonight in cursive and... It was interesting to look back after I got done writing them at my writing. The cursive handwriting is a much more consistent size and shape than my regular sloppy, I'm just writing well, it down. you're right-handed, right? I am right-handed. I'm ambidextrous, but I write right-handed. You know who's responsible for this? People that are left-handed. I'm sure of it. Because they drag their hand through what they've written because our script goes left to right. And then it becomes sloppy. That's that's who it is. I'm blaming my dad. My dad's left-handed. My I, mom was right-handed. I'm ambidextrous, but I write right-handed poorly. I can remember when I was younger, <laughs> when I'd be at my grandma's house over the summer, her practicing her penmanship in both right-handed and left-handed. Really? In cursive and block lettering. That's super cool. That she would just find, like articles in the newspaper and copy them out to practice her penmanship because she didn't want to lose her penmanship as she got older. That is pretty awesome. I've never practiced my penmanship since I don't have to anymore, to be totally honest with you. And it shows in my handwriting, my terrible, terrible handwriting. You know, it's really something to stop and think about for my whole original question is cursive handwriting going to become secret code in the nursing home. It's possible. I mean, there's, there's so many different fonts on the computer. Cursive is going to be like the wingdings, you know, the, the representation of symbols. Cause some letters, when you translate them from the standard alphabet to cursive, they actually look quite different. Nobody dots their J's anymore, even with the standard. No, they don't. You're right. In cursive, though, if you don't, yeah, you get you get a check mark, or so I did. <laughs> but in your drills, where you were practicing your penmanship, going fast, trying to supersede the laws of nature, and basically making terrible-looking little letter-like. <laughs> Excuse me. Pictures. All right. So what do you feel about it? I feel cursive handwriting should be taught still. I remember learning it, and I learned it a grade before the school I moved into at third grade. I learned it in second grade, and then my parents moved, and we came here in third grade, where I live currently, and they weren't teaching it until third grade, and I wasn't allowed to use it until everybody else learned it because it made it harder for the teacher when she would right. pass our assignments around and have us check everybody's assignment if they yeah. couldn't read it. 
I don't use it regularly. I can still read cursive handwriting and I proved to myself today that if I took the time, I could still write cursive handwriting. Well, I, I run into a concern on my end of it, just playing devil's advocate here. But now school is very different from when we were in school, you know. And they have to learn a bunch of other things that weren't even subjects then. And they use items like iPads and tablets and a bunch of other stuff that don't require any writing at all. And filling the day up with every subject with everything that they have to do with those subjects what gets bumped what gets changed where do you find time for cursive handwriting right or where do you find time for anything else that's the question you can't standardize music class you can't standardize cursive handwriting like you said not in a realistic sense I did read a couple things about how it's been declining on the SAT test. I never took the SAT. I only took the ACT. But on the SAT, there is a um, section where you have to write out your answers. Right. And that it's been declining since the early 2000s on how many people are actually writing in cursive handwriting compared to block-style lettering. And that the cursive handwriting tends to have more time they've seen or more opportunity to write a longer section than the block style lettering. Well, when your word is all one motion of the pen, instead of lifting it up, like you said, I could see that. Okay, then. Well, listeners, if you're still with us, a reminder of what our premise here is. Um, we think and research... And do everything for these podcasts sober. Stone Cold Sober. And my podcast today was hard to do sober. My topic, not my podcast. I'm podcasting while I'm drinking. That's cool. Um, but honestly, it was very inspirational. And here we go. Why don't you and I have a conversation about beer? I like beer. I like beer too. Beer is probably my favorite alcoholic beverage. Not to take away from any of my other favorites, but still. So, about 7,000 years ago, somebody made some beer in what would be like modern-day Iran. Relatively recently, some archaeologists dug it up, and they took it and they uh, tested it, and they found out, hey, we might have found what is the oldest known beer production in the world. On a private level, obviously, not a epic. Please tell me nobody know. tasted it. No, no, it was just residue. But I said epic because it is mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Have you read that yet? No. Have I told you to? No. Yeah. I don't think we more, own it. More than once. Anywho. <laughs> Originally, beer was not what we are drinking tonight. Beer was thick. It was like a porridge. Like in Sumeria, they had special straws that they would use so they could suck the juice out and leave all the uh, thick particles behind. Well, then I'm really glad I live when we it, live. It would have been very bitter. I don't like bitter beer. Nobody likes bitter beer. Bitter beer face. Um... The Greeks. The Greeks called the beer Brutos. 
the Romans. The Romans, they called it Cervizia. So do you want a brew or a cerveza? Yeah, root words, like that. A um, little side note, historically, because we've mentioned Romans, um, being a big fan of Spartacus, the Thracians, they drank a rye beer. I and like wheat beer. Rye beer is good. I like rye beer. Uh, listeners, I have set myself to a task of trying every possible beer that I can. Just so you know, I have an encyclopedia that I bought probably 15 years ago, and I marked down every beer that I've had out of it. But with all the microbrews and stuff, I'm a little bit behind now because the book is very outdated. But back to the topic. Egyptians had beer as part of their daily meal. Every day they had beer. And the laborers on the Great Pyramid, they actually got paid, or they got rationed, like four or five liters a day. Of beer? Of beer. Think about that. You know, you got your two liter bottles? Yeah. You get two and a half of those every day, at you know, at the most. I run into the issue, though, that I like cold beer, not warm beer. Well, you're a product of your time. I am. So, we're going to move forward in time a little bit, because really, beer history stays pretty much the same, aside from, like, having brewers that were devoted to gods. The monks. No, no, we're not that far yet. But I was thinking, like, the, in, like, Mesopotamia or Sumeria, there were women that were totally devoted, and that was their, their like, day-to-day living. They brewed beer, and they were totally set up. I could be happy brewing beer. You couldn't be happy brewing beer. I could be happy drinking the beer I brewed. Okay, anyhow, um, let's jump forward now, since you mentioned the monks. We'll go to Middle Ages Europe here. You know, medieval times, good times, Robin Hood, you know, stuff like that. No? Yes? No. Um, the monks, they did begin brewing beer. Well, actually, they opened whole breweries. But it was for hospitality, for travelers and pilgrims going through at the time. Beer was hearty. Beer is hearty, but beer also makes you see things, apparently. Um... It was the most popular drink among all social classes at the time, even though a lot of places in Europe during the Middle Ages did have a freshwater stream or whatever. You also had things like the plague, and you had uh, contaminated water sources or, you know, like the, what was the river, the the River Thames in England? I think so. Uh, It got so much sewage in it. Yum. It was totally non-drinkable. Alcohol does happen to kill bacteria. I remind you of that regularly. Well, I'm a good good study, because look at me, not having a cold or anything right now. Um, <clears throat> hops. Hops is one of the key ingredients in beer. But they weren't actually put into use until the 9th century. Before that, it was something called gruit, or grut. I saw a couple pronunciations. Uh, gruit ingredients include sweet gale. What is that? It's an herb. Mugwort, yarrow, ground ivy, whorehound, and heather. Of this list, I have had whorehound candy. I've had things flavored with heather. That's it. So, 
Oh, kind of curious. Also, occasionally juniper berries were used in it. And I've, I've heard things, of that. I've had things flavored with juniper berries. But until then, it was all Gruet. But hops changed the game. In the 13th century, when Germans introduced it? Mmm, Germans. Yeah. Beer took off as an export. Beer, actually. The word, beer. Uh, consumption increase. Here's an example. In Hamburg, it went from being about 300 liters per day per capita, or per year per capita, not day. God, that'd be a lot of beer. In the 15th century, to 700 liters per year per capita, 200 years later. Because they could actually make more beer. Can you convert that over to my American brain? To liters. Liters to... Okay. Let's let's try this. We're going to go with the 700 liters. No, we're going to go with 300 liters. Okay. Uh, so... Man, you're putting me <laughs> I put on the you spot. on the spot. You're putting me on the spot here, but I'm going to do it now. With my American brain. Okay. I need it explained in cups, quarts, pints, gallons. Some, somebody's out there going, hey, you're an idiot. Just use this. <laughs> Actually, you know what, Beth? There are like less than four liters per gallon. So still, it's... It's probably... A lot of beer. At least, give or take, 150 gallons a year, the first part. So, yeah, over 300 gallons in the 17th century, give or take. Now, that's really rough math. And in the 15th century in England, an unhopped beer would be called an ale, actually. Even though now our definition of ale is different. I like pale ale. Yeah. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> and a hop beer would actually be called beer. Um, now here's another mispronunciation of the podcast. Reinheitsgebot. Beer is restricted to being water, barley, and hops. That's it. In 1516, William IV, the Duke of Bavaria had a beer purity food act put into place and it's actually like one of the longest food acts or laws ever it remained until the 20th century but at some point in time after uh, pasteurization was discovered by lewis pasteur uh-huh. um, yeast was added to that list because they had no idea that yeast existed now bottom fermented beers dun 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 why am i talking about those they were discovered by accident in the 16th century. Back to my previous thing. The beer and ale thing from England. Ales are top fermenting. The yeast floats on top during the whole fermentation process. And lagers, they're a bottom fermenting. The yeast subtles. Which means when you pour it, the yeast will come out and you'll get that cloudy, delicious mixture in that first bottle or two. Says you. Well, yeah. And actually, as far as all modern beers are concerned, they're part of one of two families, top fermenting or bottom. They're ales or lagers, no matter what. No matter what color the beer is, 
um, the Industrial Revolution really set things off for beer to become less of a homebrew or a bunch of monks brewing it or the pubs that were actually distributing it to a bigger process. Pubs, the first microbrewers. True story. But the steam engine, the thermometer, and the hydrometer, they were game changers. Before the Industrial Revolution, the malt was actually dried over fires, and they get really smoky, lots of kind of nasty flavors. So they'd use straw, or they'd use wood, or any number of non-petroleum-based burnables. But my man, Daniel Wheeler, invented the drum roaster in 1817. Game changer. You could totally roast that malt until it was nice and dark and have some delicious porter, perhaps. Now, before I talk about Prohibition, I want to talk about Anheuser-Busch really quickly because they did a couple of pretty awesome things. They were the first to pasteurize their beer in the United States to keep it fresh longer, which is huge. And then they were the first to use mechanical refrigeration. And, boom, 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 refrigerated rail cars. And they came about in 1876, and they could actually ship their beer. And the number of refrigerated rail cars grew exponentially. It was huge. They started leasing them out and, like, contracting companies to make these things. All thanks to beer. they could ship it. All thanks to beer. The 18th Amendment. Boo! It prohibited intoxicating liquors. Did you read that in cursive handwriting? No, actually. I did not. I should have. But it was ratified on January 16th, 1919, and its effective date was January 16th, 1920. The official start of prohibition in the United States. However, there were a couple exceptions. Apparently, religious wines were okay, so you could have your church service and have communion or whatever. And having or consuming was not actually federally prohibited. You just couldn't make... No. It was the state and local laws that totally burned people on that. However... Along comes my hero, the 21st Amendment. Yay! Totally repealed in its entirety the 18th Amendment. The only amendment in the Constitution to be totally and entirely repealed. There's no traces left of it. It's like it was never there. Thank goodness. It is a ghost. But still, after Prohibition, um, Americans, you know, since they didn't have beer all the time and it wasn't a regular part of the day it did change actually our cultural taste for beer that's why americans prefer uh, lighter beer and a weaker beer to this day because the breweries that survived they didn't make it because most of the american breweries closed in the 20s and they never reopened so there's you know a lot of beer recipes that you'll never even get to try which is sad I'm not as brave as you on trying all the different beers. I like to find something I like and stick with it. I like to try beers. I like to try them all. I'm not brave. Even smelling some of the things you drink, I'm... Oh, they're delicious. But what do you do? I love all beers. 
I like beer a lot, but not all beers. I like the idea of trying them. I have had some, honestly, I have had some that I had to chew down or say, nope, that is really not something I care to even finish. Actually, that's only happened twice where I couldn't finish the beer that I tried. One was a microbrew and one was an import. And normally I love imported beers. I'm aware of this. Little side note, uh, you know, Budweiser in America. There's also a Budweiser in Europe from the Czech Republic. It's a Budweiser Boudoir. And in America, it's marketed under the brand Cristal. And I've never actually got to try it, which I don't like. On that note. Of things gone by. I'm EJ. I'm Beth. And this was the Alcohol Podcast. You can go ahead and reach us on email, if you like, at alcohuh at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Look up alcohuh and you'll find us, more than likely. Uh, Give us a rating and review on your favorite podcatching service. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else that you can find your podcasts, hopefully at this point. Now, cheers! Prost. Prost. Skull. Skull. Take care, guys. See you next time.